Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And I have a really special guest on. You guys aren't going to believe this guy. So stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back. I am excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Steve Sims. Steve, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I told Steve, this is now on my personal page, my personal Facebook page. This is my 1000th live stream on my personal page. So that's awesome, dude. And you're my guest. That's so cool. I love it. I'm honored. Uh, so am I. So hey, I've I've um, you know you and I met through Justin Breen, uh-huh. and um, we didn't know each other. I've I've looked at some of your stuff. You seem pretty incredible, and I'm excited to hear your story. This is this is this show. I created this about two and a half years ago, and and it was to help people get unstuck. I think people get stuck in life. They make mistakes. They do whatever, and they stay there. And, dude, I know you're the guy that can help some people get unstuck today. So, so let's let's start with. By the way, there will be times where it's full screen just on you. Um, so, so I want to want to start with where you were born and raised, Steve. Wow, um, I was born born in Reading, just outside of London, and raised in East London. Um, as a construction worker, my parents uh, owned a tiny little construction firm. I finished school at the age of 15. Um, one day I was allowed to lay in after finishing school. Second day, bang, I'm on the building site. So that was it. I, I had a, it's funny, I thought I had a very poor upbringing. Um, we didn't have, we never had a takeaway until I think I was 18 or 19. So wow. uh, we had steak once a year on uh, my parents' anniversary where we all had to put a shirt on. Um, and it was the cheapest <laughs> kind of meat you could ever find. But while I ended up resenting that, it wasn't until I, I hit my early 20s that I realized how fortunate I had been because all of the lessons I had been taught was keep your word, stand up for yourself, stand up for others. I didn't realize how wealthy an upbringing I actually had. So when you say takeaway, does that mean like, like, What's that mean? A, de- a delivery. I think we had a. Um, I think we had a pizza or China. I think it was a Chinese uh, delivered, and we had never had. We never had cash. Uh, we never wow. had money. But I remember when someone came to my house with food. It was the most <laughs> earth-shattering experience I had ever been through. Really? Oh, and yeah. That happened it was once. It, it, well, it happened. Well, happens a lot now. I live in LA. It's pretty much yeah. every day. Um, right. But uh, uh, it happened. Bearing in mind, I was in East London. It, again, it wasn't like that. We were poor, but we didn't have any money. So you know, we were very frugal with it, and we were very careful with it. Uh, and such kind of expenditure, like a order and a takeaway, was just unheard of. You know. But yeah. I remember we we splashed out once. I don't know what happened, but Mum wanted to try this new 
you know, uh, ethnic food. So she ordered Chinese. She we, we weren't exactly the most educated group in the planet. <laughs> And um, we had this Chinese food delivered. And I remember just looking at the table with all these little pots going, oh, what's going on here? Because for the first 17 years of my life, it had been there it is on a plate. You eat it. If you if you don't like it, you go hungry. It was that kind of life. I, you know what, though? I, I grew up exactly that way, too, man. It was like, you know, now I look at my kids and, I'm like, and they're like, oh, I don't like whatever. And I'm like, eat it anyway. There, there are kids in in outside of London going hungry. <laughs> like, you know, my mom always said, "There's kids outside of, in China going hungry." Here, where I'm like, "Well, then send it to them." So, yeah. so, you know, so you grew and you said you got into you were in the construction business, like building what home. <laughs> It wasn't any of the big stuff. Uh, we oh. did do some. We did do some uh, factory work, but predominantly it was like you know little home extensions and okay. re-roofs and new walls and stuff like that. But every now and then, my dad would get a job uh, working in a factory where we were repairing walls or part of a construction team where they were taking on like thirty different construction firms because they were under time or something like that so we yeah. did some of the big stuff but most of the stuff it was like a little home little home stuff so it was a real kind of drive around in your van and posting uh little uh cards through people's letterboxes and things like that it was that kind of thing yeah so but that man that teaches you a lot doesn't it yeah as i say you know i really thought you know i hated it and of course you know and i know we're going to go through it but i did everything i possibly could to get away from that life because I thought it was the dumbest, stupidest, just low level kind of job accompanied with my low level, poor life. You can imagine me as a young kid, very resentful. You know, I was a big, ugly lad, kind of thinking the world had done me a, a misjustice until I suddenly realized that, hang on a minute, you know, just by sticking a card through someone's letterbox, I, I was being introduced to marketing. Yeah. At a grassroots level. And then shock, horror, surprise, that opened the door because, you know, uh, they have seen something come through the door. And there's this young guy there with like tattoos and earrings. All of a sudden, I'm learning improv because I'm like, oh, hello. Uh, your front wall looks shit. Do you want a new one, Bill? You know, <laughs> and you'd realize that some of the time that didn't work. But, you know, some of the time it absolutely did. Yeah. And so you were learning all of these kind of client relations, marketing. Now, you know, it's not what you look at now, but it gave me a phenomenal grassroots. And actually, I believe, is my secret source. If I had not had that and so many lessons that I do now, and I know we're going to name drop like crazy soon, but so many of the stuff that I do now for millions of dollars yeah. came from me screwing up on like a $12 invoice or or doing right in the wrong thing on a on a flyer but it's amazing how many times i've gone back and gone oh i remember when i learned that just walking out of the pub so it's it's kind of funny <laughs> i but see that and and <clears throat> that so you took that and you've turned it into like massiveness in your life but a lot of people take those little mistakes and they stay stuck there like at 12 years old my dad smacked the shit out of me for for doing this and and they stay stuck there and they don't do anything with their lives and and so that's what we're going to eventually get into but did you did let me ask you this did you um joe ingram you must know joe I joe, know joe and you yeah. must be friends 
Um, so, so no, he's um, just a mood bugger. <laughs> he is, isn't he? He is, man. Um, so, so did you end up going to college at all? No, only one I wanted to kind of like find the girls because that's where the girls went. Because funny enough, there weren't many girls that you wanted to talk to on a building site. Um, so I used to go to the local uh, uh, college every now and then just to see if I could, uh, you know, find anyone stupid enough to talk to me. But um, it's funny. I left school at the age of 15, never went to college, university, anything like that. Yeah. But I've lectured twice at Harvard. And wow. I still rub that into the kids. And kids are there to just abuse you. I go, yeah, yeah, Dad, we remember. You've told us. But, yeah, it was kind of funny to, to see that whole world turn around. But, no, my, my younger life, um, my younger life, and we'll get into the, to the whole mm-hmm. unstuck premise, but my younger life was very uneducated. And okay. so my wife always said that I had the superpower of ignorance. Oh, and, you know, that ignorance married with uh, uh, uneducation, married with lack of intimidation, because we didn't have YouTube or Instagram to tell me how better everyone else's life was than mine. I already knew mine was pretty dirt. Um, <laughs> married all of that together, it was a hell of a cocktail. I wasn't frightened of anything. I will tell you this quick story. I remember going into a pub with a couple of my buddies, and uh, we walked in there, and there was a local guy that apparently owned the local like gas station and supermarket or something like that. But as far as everyone else in our little town was concerned, this was Elon Musk and Richard Branson married as as one. You know, this was like, oh, my God, when you've made it, you're this guy. You know, he owns a gas station and a supermarket, you know. (laughs) Um, And I remember that everyone was so in awe that this was the local big man and all the girls wanted to chat with him and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, well, okay, if I want to know how to get wealthy, if I want to get out of this shithole, surely I've got to know people like that. So I went over, straight over, introduced myself and started talking to him. And we were having a conversation and I looked around and I realized my two buddies had not left the side of the room. Mm. They had stayed there. And it suddenly validates me that there are people that's biggest problems are themselves. You are the five people you associate with. Yeah. All of my five friends were broke-ass British bikers, <laughs> so I needed to change my five friends. And I was always prepared to be – my wife jokes that I'm a 54-year-old, a 4-year-old, but I'm always the guy that I run up to someone and go, hello, how did you do that? You know, and I'd bang straight in like a little kid. And you'll be amazed at how much who I've asked those questions to and how well it's done for me. Well, <clears throat> wow, man. I, I So how old were you when you when you decided to go talk to the guy that owns the gas station? Oh, I was like 17 years old. I was, wow. uh, you know, yeah, young, young punk, you know, just in an East End London pub. Um, thought I was the toughest kid in the planet. You know, it was it was a mess. I'm not quite sure I'd want to meet myself now, but you know, I was just searching. Um, but yeah. I, I realized, as I say, I've, I've always been very primitive. You know, the the hammer may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but it's pretty freaking effective. Um, <laughs> and so I would always be the guy that went, okay, I'm going to go and do this. And you said something at the beginning, which was very valuable about people get stuck. And they make mistakes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I relish mistakes because it teaches me how bad I did. Like with me turning around and going, hey, you got an ugly ass wall. Do you want a new one? 
that taught me how to speak to a client when right. I would walk up to someone and go, hey, I'm Steve Sims. Tell me why you're rich and I'm not. I realized that was the wrong way to enter into a conversation. So all of the mistakes that I had, you know, I relished. I, I from a very early age, I realized that they were my education. They were my my PhD. I'm a doctor, a doctorate in screwing up. But all of those mistakes has taught me how to be as successful as I am now. <clears throat> that that might be the be the the hammer is not the sharpest tool in the shed, but it's very effective. <laughs> I love that man. I love that somebody. Uh, Somebody type that whole quote in. That, that's awesome. So, so you were, and I, I think, you know, here you're 17 years old, and you literally in that moment you look back at your buddies and you're like, why, why are you guys staying over there? And you really had that in that moment. You had the thought like they're standing in their own way, or you realized it years later. Um, at the time I was, at the time I was actually upset and annoyed with them. Yeah. And it's like all little kids, you know, um, when you don't have the education, you get frustrated very quickly. And as yeah. a teenager, <clears throat> I spent a lot of my life being frustrated because yeah. I knew, like all entrepreneurs, you know, we're all different. We can all tell different stories. We all come from different parts of the world, but we all share the same DNA. And we're dysfunctional until we're incredibly functional. And I knew at the time that it wasn't right. You know, I was in pubs. You know, I didn't want to be in pubs. You know, I didn't want to be in East London Friday night fights. I didn't want to be working on a building site. You know, I didn't yeah. want to be poor, you know, but I didn't know what I did want to be. And like all mm. entrepreneurs, we have that frustration and we don't fit till we really fit. And that's what it was for me. So I was very frustrated that I'd gone over there and I felt as though my friends had left me. You know, I felt as though, why didn't you have my back? Why didn't you come over with me? I could have looked like a complete idiot, which I probably right. did. Um, but, you know, why didn't you? And, but in that moment also, I was like, well, hang on a minute. You're over there with your hands in your pockets counting out how many coins you got to see if you can afford another round of beer. And I'm stood talking, chatting with the richest guy in the town. And so I suddenly started to realize the disconnects and it moved. And I'll give you, I'll give you one of my probably the most pivotal moment of my life okay wow is yeah. it in the pub uh, it, it wasn't in the pub but it was on a building site okay? okay yeah so my dad as i say you know he had this building site and every now and then he got these big contracts and every time he got part of this big contract he would bring in all of his brothers and cousins and his his, his dad and stuff and i was working on this building site one morning and I had to grab some bricks. And it was this funny kind of weird thing you put on your shoulder to carry a bunch of bricks called a hod. Yeah. And I climbed up the ladder to give him these bricks. And as I got to the top of the ladder, I'm now on the scaffold. It may be 40 feet up in the air. And the first person next to me on this thin row of scaffolding was my dad. Now, next to him was his brother, my uncle. Mm -hmm. And then next to him was three of my cousins. And then next to him was my dad's dad, my granddad. Mm. I saw my entire family tree in front of me. Now, all of my cousins were in their early 20s. And I suddenly thought, 
is this it? And I froze. And I had all these bricks on my shoulder. And in the end, my dad yelled at me and was like, yeah, put them down off, get some more. So I did that. And then come 10 o'clock in the morning, you have a tea break where you're all sweaty and cold and wet from the day. It's England and it always rains. We're in this old caravan with no wheels, just trying to get warm while drinking our kind of bacon sandwich and our cup of tea before we go back out again. And I walked into this caravan and I saw my granddad in the corner by the heater trying to get warm. Stupidest question in the world, and I've always acknowledged it was, surprised I didn't get a punch in the nose, big, thick Irish family. <laughs> I went over and I sat in front of him and I went, granddad, granddad. And I remember this. I can remember the smell of the caravan, the heat on the right-hand side of my face from the burner. Granddad, granddad, did you think you would ever be doing this at your age? Oh, God. And as I say, that deserved for me to be smacked in the Tuesday. <laughs> he didn't He didn't look up. He did not make eye contact with me while he was sipping his tea with both hands on it. But he said these words. He said, son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. I just, dude, and that just gave me chills. <laughs> I, just I was, all of a sudden, the caravan went quiet. And I was like, whoa. And we, and all of a sudden, the, the bell goes and everyone has to go back out onto the building site. As we went out there, you know, my dad was walking off because, you know, he was the foreman of the building site. I was like, dad, 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 come here, dad, dad. Yeah, and he hated me calling him dad at the building site. It's like, dad, yeah. dad. So he, he came in, what, what? I said, dad. And I, I said to him, I said, I, I went in there and there was granddad. He was over there and he was over in the corner. Whatever. I said, would you ever do this? And he said, if you don't quit today, you beat me up. I've got to quit. My dad looked at me. And at that time, my granddad walked behind me. And they looked at each other. And my, my dad just turned around and said, we're light-handed. You finish Friday. And this was like Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that. I was like, okay. Now, he always supported that I was out. Yeah. Okay. Always supported that, okay, you want to try something else. Make mistakes, but use those mistakes. Grow from those mistakes, relishing those mistakes. He was the first one that taught me the mistakes are the education on what not to do. Yeah. And mistakes. Mistakes should never be the final, final curtain call. You can right. only lose a fight when you stop getting up. Yeah. Um, and it was all those kind of things from the thick Irish mentality. But my mum, the Irish mum, oh, <laughs> my God. You know, it was a case of every meal, you think you're better than us, don't you? And I'd say to oh. her, no, 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 I don't think I'm better than you. I just think I'm better than this. I think I can be something, Mum. You know, I think I think there's something out there for me that I'm supposed to do. I don't know what it is. And wow. she would always revert to, you think you're better than us. Oh, for God's sake. So we never, after that, connected. But that was the, that was the moment that I went, all right, I'm going out swinging. And if I win, great. If I lose, because I had every excuse. I had every privilege to be able to turn around and go, what do you expect? I'm a bricklayer from East London. I gave it a shot. I fight. What do you expect? I had every back out possible. I was oh, even man. rehearsing one-liners when people would laugh at me in the pub because I'd seen them doing it to other guys who were trying to do businesses and fail. Yeah. And I also realized then no one actually worries about failing. They worry about other people seeing it. Right. 
And that that was another, again, these things that have got me working with the Pope and Elon Musk today, I've learned from the pub of East London. So Holy that was it. Yeah. I went out and I went, right, okay. And I went for stupid. I decided that if everything I tried to do was the most ridiculous, stupid thing I could go for, if I went for stupid and failed, I achieved the ridiculous. And as we all know, you're stupid one second before it's genius. So <laughs> that was my mentality. You just said Elon Musk. I mean, the, the people that have attacked that dude, and he might be the most genius man on the planet. <laughs> and, and he's been through so many attacks, people say, and that's the dumbest idea ever. Shall I, shall I give you a, I give you a story for my first name drop? I, I so would love to hear because I listen just for anybody that doesn't know. Let me say this: share this out because this guy, this guy is connected to some amazing people, and you're about to hear. Here, I, I want to hear Elon Musk's story. So I was, um, I was doing an event for Elon down at SpaceX, and this was pre NASA, and I had uh, thirty, uh, thirty people that came along. Each of them were paying like $80,000 to attend. And literally within the 30 that we had there, we had like a security detail of about 100 people all around the building and around these people. We had, I think it was four of the richest people in the planet as part of those that came along to the event. So this was a top tier group of people that yeah. were walking through SpaceX. Now they were all at the far end waiting for Elon to turn up. And I was at the other end with Elon and I had two of my, uh, my, my, my very well, well off clients. that I was, you know, given the extra little mile to by letting them get close to Elon. And we were then going to walk down the, uh, the main hall of SpaceX into one of the meeting rooms where Elon would meet the rest of them. So as we're walking through SpaceX with fuselage all over the place and things, I didn't know what they did. Um, and the Space Center, the Space Center had already been set up, which was our terminal uh, yeah. control center. As we're walking down there, I had two clients to the left of me and then Elon to the right. So I was kind of like the buffer. Now, yeah. the guy next to me was just thrilled to be in the room with Elon, you know, would say, hey, this is a great pleasure. Wow, what is that part? You know, just murmuring. It took about 12 minutes to get to the room. The guy on the far left was getting a little bit aggravating. He wanted to enter into a conversation with Elon. Hey, hey, so, um, so how did you do this? Why did that happen? How did that? And he was trying. He was a bit, and a couple of times I went, hey, calm yourself. We got time for these questions. Right. Calm yourself down. Now, it was at the time that NASA was publicly ridiculing Elon for being it. There's no space uh, for a privateer and someone in the public center, a sector to enter into the space industry. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the – this was stuff NASA was releasing. Wow. Okay? Yeah. So the client on the far left, I'll save his name for sheer embarrassment for him, <laughs> but he suddenly turned around and he said – Hey, hey, how do you feel about NASA? Because there was a rumor, it's never been qualified, there was a rumor that NASA had actually engaged a PR firm just to discourage and discredit Elon. They had wow. actually gone as far as to set up a team just to send out these kind of tweets. Wow. So this guy turned around and said, oh, you know, what do you think about NASA always kind of saying you can't do this and you can't do that and, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Elon never even stared at him. We carried on walking. He never missed a beat. 
But he turned around and utter, and he doesn't talk. He's not a great conversationalist. Don't invite him to a dinner party. He's not the <laughs> he's not the king of the room. And he just turned around and he said, "They will always laugh at you before they applaud." Uh, and that's all he said. And I think it was like ten months later, uh, NASA entered into a contract and SpaceX became a government center. And now we now I was pissed off because now I couldn't get in there. Um, but that's all he said to this guy. And it was like, you're right. They would always laugh at you before they applaud. Wow. Somebody type that in the comments, please. That's brilliant. So, so uh, my, you know, I mean, I, I, I think Elon Musk is, is one of the most brilliant people in the world. Um, you know, how do you go from a, 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 a Mason, <laughs> a, a bricklayer, in East London in a pub to hanging out with and being not just hanging out with, but being a buffer for Elon Musk from these. How do you, how does dude, how so, does that happen? I'll give you the con, uh, condensed story. But again, I said to you that I went, I always wanted to go for stupid. And so uh, a friend of mine was a stockbroker in East London and he always wore a suit, and I always therefore that thought that he was like, you know, you know, some character out of the Wall Street movie, and I wanted to be that because I always had jeans and big Wellington boots on. Yeah. Um, and so he he told me about this trainee position where they were sending people to Hong Kong because Hong Kong was what they called the tiger market at the time. So I actually talked my way, and that's a whole story in itself, but I talked my way into getting a job. In Hong Kong. Now, I left the uh, the the audition uh, for that, the interview, yeah. thinking there's no way in the world I'm going to get a job as a trainee. I've got eyebrow piercings and tats, and I'm 245 pound of, of ugly. You know, I'm not the kind of character that you want turning up to discuss your finances unless <laughs> you owe some money to Big Johnny, and I'm there to collect it. You know, <laughs> so I literally just uh, I tried for it because I was going for stupid. They had to get like about 200 people over to Hong Kong within a very short period of time. For some reason, I got in. So I, they flew me over to Hong Kong on the Saturday. I got drunk with them on the Saturday night, got drunk with them on the Sunday night. I went to orientation on the Monday, and I was fired on the Tuesday. So I'm now in Hong Kong with no job, but I had separated ties. I was now completely alone. I had all of my excuses. Part of the contract was that I had the apartment for three months and a return uh, aircraft ticket. So I could have left at any moment and everyone, and I could have walked back in the pub and go, boys, what do you expect? I'm a brickie from London. I shouldn't have been in Hong Kong, but oh, you want to see that? Yeah, that would have been fine. I'd have been the king of the conversation for a few weeks. Right. But I also thought, again, what if I try? What if I try? I tried to get a job. I couldn't get a job. The funny thing was I ended up very depressed in a very dark moment of my life, getting drunk out of the side of a dodgy nightclub in Wang Chai. And if you know where Wang Chai is, you're the kind of deviant that I was throwing out of those clubs. So Wang Chai was just a seedy club area of the uh, the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s. And this girl actually that run the club actually asked me to, to kick out uh, a, a falang, a gualo, a, a, basically a white fella inside. And she came out and she goes, there's one of your guys in there. And I'm like, I'm on my own. So how can she like, you know, you take him out or my people will come and hurt him. And I said, look, I want nothing to do. She said, you do that. I pay for your drink. And I thought I can drink women. So I'm on that deal. So 
I went in there and said to the guys, look, leave because I've asked you nicely. Come back tomorrow and I'll buy you your first beer. Or if you don't go out the front door, I know you're going to be dragged out the back door with hammers and you probably won't even see Tuesday. So I'm hoping there's a little bit of smartness in there. I'm going to be waiting outside at the front. I really want to see you paying your bill and walking out the front. All right, boys? And I got up and left. You know, didn't threaten them, didn't try to intimidate yeah. them. There were three of them. Ten minutes later, they walked out and they were like, thanks, man. Thank you. We'll, we'll be back tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, good for you. You know, I didn't care. <laughs> and she came over and she said to me, because she was a little bitch, she said to me, she said, you work here now. You work for me. You work for me. And I apologize if I'm offending anyone with the accent. No, she's like, you work for me now. And I'm like, what do you mean I work for you? And she's like, yeah, you work for me. You, I have many clubs. Many, you work for me. So I was thinking, well, i got no money, you know. <laughs> so I started working on the door. First night on the door, the following day, first night on the door, those bastards came back. They expected their first beer. Yeah. So I turned around to her and I went, oh, I got the guys out yesterday. We need to get them a beer on the house. And she was like, fuck off. You pay for beer. You pay beer. You promise you pay beer. I had to buy those bastards a beer. But the thing and that- you had the, no money. I had no money. But the funny thing was, the funny thing was, I was now on a soapbox where I could watch people. Now- I was very good, even though I was a big fellow and I was quite handy with myself at the time, I never got into a lot of fights. Right. Because I was able to go up there and go, look, we can dance, but I'd, I'd really like not to, you right. know, because no one's going to win. Um, any chance you could just, like, leave, you know? And that would always be my kind of way. And I always, again, I always discovered that if you push someone into a corner, they've only got one way to come back, flying at you. Right. But if you give them a couple of angles to keep that pride, keep their honor, you know what it I was I was probably the best bouncer that never had a fight. Um it was it was beautiful. So she started putting me in some of her more upscale clubs. Yeah. And that was it. I suddenly got to see rich mm. people. And I suddenly got to see how they handled themselves, how they handled other people. Because you can tell someone that can I like, thinks they've got a bit of money. You know, yeah. or they're yeah. wearing a watch and they make sure the sleeve is pulled up just so you can see it's a Rolex, just yeah. so you're impressed. I noticed there were people that, that bought watches for your pleasure or for theirs. So I would literally, again, 54-year-old, 4-year-old, I would go up to people and I'd go, I like that watch. Why did you buy that? And I would like to understand the reason behind it. Yeah. And you'd get some people that would turn around and go, oh, well, this is 15 grand. <laughs> and you could straight away know that those were the people that were in trying to impress other people. Okay. Yeah, and right. then you get people that turn around and go, my dad always wanted a Rolex, you know, in fact, this was my dad's Rolex. Um, and he's no longer, and, and you, you just got to know people. Yeah. And then here came one of my pivotal moment, moments. I was doing very well as a doorman being asked to look after various things, yacht parties, mansion parties, all these kind of things. Yeah. And these guys, I wanted to find a reason to talk to them. I've often said, getting your foot in the door, especially today, that's dead easy. You know, yeah. you text someone, you DM them, you send something to them in LinkedIn, you like that Tinder, whatever. Getting yeah. your foot in the door is really easy. Being so irresistible and so much of value that they never want you to leave, yeah. that's the real talent today. So 
I realized that I had to find a way to have rich people wanting to talk to me. Now, because there was no Google in the, in the 90s, yeah. I knew where all the best nightclubs were. So I was literally going up to people going, hey, what are you doing Thursday? There's a party up the road. You know, do you want me to see if I can get you in? And I was giving these people. So I became like the, the nightlife guru. What? And this is, is still in Hong Kong. This was in Hong Kong, like 95. You know, I'm wow. in the early 20s. And I'm just starting to make some seed. But here's the thing. Um, Joe Ingram, for some reasons, just put down his Tinder profile. I don't know why he did that. <laughs> no one is swiping on Joe Ingram. That's for sure. Um, so I, I, these guys came in that were regulars of mine. And I'd always sorted them out on tips. You know, do you want to go to this party? And they'd be like, oh, cheers, Steve. You know, here's 50 bucks. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, cheers. And that's how it works. And they came to me and they went, hey, are you going to the yacht party? Now, if anyone knows Hong Kong, it's actually a very, very small island. And it's got loads of, of uh, harbors around it. Yeah. So I said to him, I said, uh, cockily, I went, oh, I probably will. Because I was always turning up at these clubs and parties because yeah. I was nine times out of ten, the doorman. Um, oh, and they would say, are you going to the yacht party? And I'd be like, yeah, there's loads going. Which one are you talking about? And they told me what yacht party it was. And I went, why aren't you guys going? And they went, oh, we can't get in. And they started giving me these excuses. And I was like, oh, okay. And I killed the conversation. I walked up to the front door. And I'm stood there with my fellow meathead. It's about 7.30. Most clubs are opened up early there. They were like bars that turned into clubs. Yeah. And it was about 7.30 at night. And I said to him, stay here a minute. I'm just going to take a little walk. And so I took my tie off. So I just had a black suit on and a white shirt. And I walked down to the harbor and I found the girl that was getting everything organized for this yacht party. And I walked up to her and I said, Hey, how you doing? And my name's Steve Sims. You got four of my boys coming here tonight. Um, just out of respect. I know you're going to be very, very busy. Um, but you start at nine o'clock. I wondered, would you prefer they got here at eight 30 and lined up? Or would you prefer they got there at 10 o'clock when the rush has gone? <laughs> The knee-jerk reaction she had was to start going through this sheet of names. Yeah. I hadn't given her any names. Right. But everyone's got a knee-jerk reaction. Normally, the knee-jerk reaction is no. Okay? Yeah. But I hadn't asked her a question that she could answer with a yes or a no. Uh, that's yeah. one of my first things. Don't Brilliant. ask a question where you're scared or liable for the answer. Yeah. So I gave her two options that worked for me. So she wow. starts flicking through this chart. And I went, look, you're going to be stressed tonight. You're going to be pressured. I've been in the same situation as you are. So, look, I don't want to – I just want to think what's best for you. Right. So now I'm empathizing with her. Now I'm relating to her. So she goes, well, 10.30 would be better. Thank you so much. And then, wow. bearing in mind, I was making 600 bucks, uh, you know, a week, you know, five, 600 bucks a week, you know, really, yeah. and then on tips. So I had like about 200 bucks in my pocket. So I bought out $100 and I gave it to her. And I said, look, let's be blunt. We know what people are like. They're going to pile into the party and they're not going to remember us to actually put. I'm actually relating to her. I'm calling her yeah. us now, you know. So I said, they're not going to remember people like us. So I want it. Tomorrow, grab yourself a takeaway and a bottle of wine and just be thankful it's over and that you pulled off an amazing party. Have a good night. Don't stress too much. Go with the flow. Wow. And she took this up and she was like, thank you. And then I then I bet everything on red. I went, have a good night. I turned around 
and went to walk off. And she went, oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Um, what were their names? Because bear in mind, I hadn't given her the names. So she went, what are their names? So I went, oh, that's a... she wrote them down on the front of the page. And she said, make sure they asked for me. And she gave me her name. Holy mother of God. So mother. then I went back to the club. Wow. I walked into the club, walked up to the table. And I went, boys, I've just made a phone call. I didn't even have a phone. I went, I've just made a phone call and I've managed to pull it off. Do you still want to go to that yacht party? Hoping to God they were going to say yes, because it cost me a hundred bucks already. Right. And they went, yeah. And I said, well, I pulled some strings. You're going in as a VIP. You turn up at 1030. You ask for this girl. It's 500 bucks per person. <laughs> and at that second, that's freaking they, just, awesome. they got their wallet out and they were like, oh, Steve, the... And in that moment, I realized <laughs> people don't pay to get in. They pay to remove the embarrassment of being turned away, declined, you know, all that. People will pay for anything, you know, Dude. if it's a value to them. And so it works. So they went down. They enjoyed it. She started telling me more about the parties. I then started. I went from a doorman to throwing um. my own parties in uh, clubs that weren't doing very well on slow nights, taking over mansions, taking over penthouses. And it grew to, in the end, the events that I ended up throwing or working with over like my 20-year, 25-year-old uh, year old uh, time frame, I've worked with the Ferrari Formula One team for Monaco, uh, the Kentucky Derby, the Grammys. Um, just finished this year, eight years working with Sir Elton John on his Hollywood Oscar party. So... It's kind of gone a little bit from working at the clubs, but uh, that's the kind of thing that I got involved in. And every time I every time I did anything, that became the new standard of normal. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm speechless. Like I don't even know what to say. That is so. That's beyond brilliant. So so here, <laughs> did you know these guys had money? Did you know yeah. these four guys had so you knew that there was a good chance they're gonna they're gonna pony up the cash? I don't like chances. I don't like chances and I don't like liability. So yeah. I remember I remember being stood at the bar inside the club one day, and one of the things that attracted me to these four guys, because I always I always played the game I wanna be. You know, yeah. I would stand yeah. there and go, I wanna be him. I yeah. wanna be him. What makes him him? And what do I need to do to emulate it to become him? That's what I would do in my very, very primitive in, in, in my thinking, but very impactful. I remember being inside and these four guys, good looking guys, they were obviously in an office looking sharp. They had nice watches. They were very confident, always very polite. They had four girls with them. They were ordering all of the champagne and the, uh, the, uh, the hostess walked up to them and put the bill down on the table for his credit card, okay? Yeah. And she put it down, and she did what I jokingly call the tip flirt. You know, like, the waitress hasn't spoken to you for the entire meal, but when they put the bill down, it's like, oh, you've got a wonderful family. Have a really good night. As though yeah. that's going to give them bloody 30%. Um, yeah. she, she was really nice all the way through. I knew this girl. She put the bill down, and she went, oh, have a good night. Everyone blanked her because they were too invested in these other girls that they had picked up. Yeah. But the one guy suddenly looked down and saw that, and he turned around and saw that she was walking off. He jumped out of the chair. Now, I didn't know, but I was prepared. 
I didn't know if he was going to complain the bill was too much. Uh, yeah. I didn't know, any, but I was prepared just in case he got a bit handsy with the yeah. hostess. Yeah. But he went, oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And she turned around and went, I didn't see you put this down. Thank you so much for everything. He gets his credit card out. And I remember this. Threw the credit card in the in the uh, little wallet with the uh, the bill on it and hands it to her. Now, any nightclub in the freaking world, when you start getting a bit drunk, they're adding a few extra drinks to your tap. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It just happens. Okay? Yeah. The bottom line of it is this guy was so comfortable that he could afford anything. He didn't need to look at it. And on top of that, he was more concerned that he had offended the the waitress. All of that made me want to know this guy. So I decided wow. very early on, the only people I'm going to flirt with, the only people that I'm going to do business with, the only person I'm going to have in my sandpit are rich people. And why? Because poor people can't afford shit. How do I know that? <laughs> because I was poor. So why sell a product or a service or a relationship to anyone that can't afford you? It really does boggle me when someone has a product and then they go, right, okay, um, we've got this product. We're going to market it. We better work out a payment plan. Yeah. Sort of target the product to clients that can afford it as the solution to their problem. Payment wow. plans are, you know, I think, short-sighted beyond belief. Dude, that – God, that's so brilliant. Ha- look, <coughs> what grade – so 15 years old, you were, what, 10th grade? Ninth, oh, tenth? I don't know the grades. I don't know the grades oh, in the uh, you know, yeah. English school system. Oh, wow. I've got kids it's in America still. now and I don't even know. <laughs> but still, okay, so so I, I, it blows me away how observant you are. I think like, that was one of the skill sets I had from East London. I realized why? that. If, Where did that come from? Is it natural? I think, well, you know, I'm an Irish boy from East London, so you're always kind of like stepping out of a pub and quickly looking left or right to see if someone's going to mug your chips. So uh-huh. you, you've kind of got that uh, intuitive kind of like guard up a little bit. And when yeah. I don't want to play it up like I was rolling around and sleeping on the streets at night, but this, this, these were areas where, you know, there were families that yeah. you didn't mess with. You know, it was that kind of a, And I remember a few times I would say the wrong thing or the wrong joke to the wrong person. And rather than tweeting something nasty to me, that punched me in the nose. So yeah. I got instant reaction. I knew about reaction and reaction. Um, yeah. And I learned yeah. it from a very early age. I knew how far I could go to push the line. And then sometimes that little bit too far. But it just became something that I, that I grew up with. So, so you, at some point you, you ended up leaving Hong Kong and, and coming to America. What, what was, what was that? What, how did that happen? Well, there's a few little cities in between. I see some I'm sure. I'm sure. I thought that as soon as I said, I thought, wait a minute, there's probably some other. Yeah. yeah. Some people collect fridge magnets. I actually collect uh, passports. So I've got three children and they're all born in different countries. When I started to get. A, a group of uh, a rich clients in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, this was coming up to 1997. And anyone that knows the history of the UK knew that on 1997, the UK handed Hong Kong back to Chinese rule. Um, but I had all of these affluent clients. Yeah. So I moved down to Bangkok 
and started throwing parties. And I would just travel around the planet just focusing on the riches. And I would literally throw a party and then only invite rich people. Uh, and that's all I ever did. And then people were coming to me like Mercedes going, hey, we've got a car launch. Can you throw a launch for this and invite rich clients? I'd be like, uh, yep. And the <laughs> daft thing is I would throw a mansion party. I would charge all of my clients, and you're going to love this, if you throw a party and you sell alcohol in the party, you need a liquor license, don't you? Everyone knows that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But if you charge them a thousand dollars and all the drinking side is free, you don't need a liquor license. <laughs> so I would give you all the free drink, but I'd charge you a thousand bucks to get in. And then I would go to Mercedes and go, how would you like to be in a room with 200 of the richest people in Macau? And they'd be like, we'd love that. Great. That'd be 25 grand for you to sponsor the party. So then I'd get paid by the clients. I get paid by Mercedes. Usually the drinks would be given to me by a drink sponsor. I knew, I knew. I was going to ask that. I know. I was thinking to myself, how long is this going to last? Because it, it can't go on for five, six. And 25 years later, it's, it's still doing all right. Um, and that's just what kind of kept happening. So I went to Bangkok and looked after a lot of Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, then a lot of the clients, a lot of my sponsors became Swiss banks. Pigtay, Daria Hench. Um, so then what I did was I moved to Geneva and I started looking after Cartier Polo, uh, um, uh, Polo Ice Polo in Stad. started yeah. looking after the Parisian Fashion Week, the London Fashion Week. And my big thing that I was looking after was a lot of the can events, but Formula One. I got heavily into Formula One with Ferrari. Um, and then I moved over to um, uh, America in 2000. It's, uh, yeah. it's rare that i'm left left with no words dude this, this is this is unbelievable man like like you just this this all started from a guy saying hey how do we get on that yacht or that yacht party yeah. that's where it started and and you were just there to be the muscle <laughs> like yeah literally you were just you were a bouncer right like <laughs> yep that is the most brilliant thing. So I, I, there's on your, on your, your website, there's photos of you and, and, and Richard Branson and, and all of all these amazing, amazing people. Are these people that you've met at parties or that you, that are clients? Are they, uh, are you throwing parties for? It's, it's a good mixture of both. You know, I've worked okay. with, uh, um, the first time I met Steven Tyler was name dropping asshole here was when I was with Elton John um, working on his Oscar party. And then um, Steven started throwing some events for his um, Jane foundation. And so I started working for him, Richard Branson. Funny enough, I started working for his mum, Eve Branson before I started working for Richard. Um, so just they're all a combination of people. You see, the funny thing is I've worked with billionaires all over the planet. Yeah. Okay. You see pictures on my website of famous people. My clients are the people that could buy those famous people. So, you know, I've got to meet these kind of people because I've had a client from like Ukraine that's gone, hey, I'd like to play drums with Guns N' Roses, you know, and from his credit card, he could buy Guns N' Roses. So if I put pictures up on there of clients that I have, um, wow. and then you wouldn't recognize them. They, they, you wouldn't be in awe of them, but they happen to own 
they happen to be the largest owner of real estate in like St. Petersburg, you know? Wow. So these, <clears throat> these people are, are literally <clears throat> billionaires. That is absolutely mind blowing. And I know you saw Craig does on here. Uh, I, I think you did. I don't know if you saw him or not, but you know, Craig, right? Yeah. 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 I have yeah. there's a lot of remarks going up here, so I haven't been able to catch yeah, up. Yeah. There's a lot. Most of them seem to be Joe Ingram, but we're ignoring him. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, there's some good people. You got some good people on it, dude. I am. I'm. Well, I sent you a friend request. I, I deleted a few people so I could send you. So I, on Facebook, man. So so I, I think that that I, what I because I could listen to you literally all day, and I try to keep this around an hour. Um, but you know, let me ask you this question, and and. Before I ask you, know that the, the number one thing answer to this question is, is fear. So I think you are going to go deeper. What holds people back from success in life? Ooh. Yeah, you could call it fear. Um, it's doubt. It's embarrassment. Um I think a lot of the time, and we, we spoke about my secret power being ignorance, um, people can often be too smart for their own good. You know, they'll start a new company, and the first thing they'll do is invest heavily in a website, a pretty office, a sexy receptionist, a great CRM program, and they haven't focused on what the solution is that they're serving to their clients. Um, so I think people over... They oversmart things. You see, uh, I've noticed a couple of people mentioning Jay Abraham up here, and I'm, I'm not sure what the context is, but Jay Abraham's a great friend of mine, and he's a mentor, and he's often said, I have a greater I can than an IQ. The mm. downside with me is I don't think I do. Yeah. And I'm glad to say that as years have gone on, I've got better with the I do bit, but the amount of times that I screw up and fail, and I'm then able to sit back, and that's my college. I'm able to sit back and go, hang on, that proposal I did in that room failed. How did it fail? It didn't fail with the interest because they set up a, a, an appointment with me. It didn't uh, fail because of the solution I was providing because they got their 10 directors to listen to it. So I obviously had their credibility. I obviously had their interest. Where did I lose it? Was it on the pricing? Was it on the closing? If you can go down to where that moment is that you lost it, then the next meeting comes along, you shore that up because you may rarely trip on the same curb twice. If yeah. you can shore that bit up, then, then it starts becoming a home run until the next mistake comes up. So I think people have too much doubt and it's really stupid um, because a lot of people come to me and I love this because I, I also coach entrepreneurs and I train a lot of entrepreneurs now. And whether it be a rich person in the planet wanting to do an amazing bucket list item or whether it being an entrepreneur trying to launch a company, they yeah. come to you and they go, hey, I want to do this. Now, before you've had the chance to remark on it, they then go into, oh, but I can't do that, and I don't know how to do that, and I haven't got that, and I'm not connected to People will spend, on average, five times longer telling you why they can't do something than focusing their energy on why they should. Yeah. Now, me, I'm too stupid. You want to do this? Let's go. I've got people married in the Vatican by the Pope. I've closed down museums. I've sent people down to the wreck of the Titanic. If you think it's impossible, you're right. But I ain't thinking like that.
you know, I want something you said, and you've said it multiple times. Um, I don't know uh, how many books have you written? Um, only the one we're doing our second one. Now we, we pulled out bluefish in the art of making things happen about two years ago. And I've heard it's, uh, it's as good as the Bible and Harry Potter. So I've heard, cause I wrote that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to read it. dude. So, so I, I have a book title for you. Like okay. you should, you should write this book, go for stupid. Cause you Ooh. said that you said, I don't know how many times you said it. I was just going yeah. for stupid. I was just yeah. going for stupid. People don't freaking get it, man. Like I, I'm, I'm the same. I'm a high school dropout. I didn't go to college. I'm the same, man. I, I like you gotta, you gotta go for freaking. So can stupid. I? <clears throat> this is your show, so you can tell me to shut up. But and I know we're doing an hour on this. But can I give you a story of how I went for stupid, and yes. then the lesson that really came out of it? And we can go for it. Two hours. I don't care, man. It's my show and the internet, dude. If you got there, you time, go. Yeah. So I had a client. I was working. I told you before that I was working with the Pope. You know, just <laughs> thought I'd mention that. Um, but I was in Rome at the time, and a client of mine knew that I was in Rome, and he contacted me and he said that he was trying to set up a dining experience in Florence uh, for his mother-in-law and father-in-law to impress them that he was, you know, good quality to come into the family. Yeah. Can you sort it out, Steve? This was on a Sunday, <laughs> and I was, and I bring this up because someone actually mentioned something here. Anna actually mentioned uh, the Da Vinci experience, so I'm going to talk about the uh, uh, the David experience. <clears throat> so he said he wanted to do this. This was on a Sunday. He wanted to have dinner on the Wednesday. So on the Monday, I went down to Florence, and I thought to myself, okay, he wants a dining experience, not a dinner, because if it was a dinner. I'd have actually just gone on to the Italian version of Open Table, got him a five-star restaurant, yeah. phoned up the restaurant, got the chef to come out and say, hey, how did you like your pasta? We'd have been good. Never give a client what they ask for. Give them what frightens them, give them what they desire, give them what they lust and dream for. Go there. Go for stupid. And if you fall short, you'll hit ridiculous. So uh. I, actually, I actually went down there and I thought, okay, he wants a dining experience. Let's go for stupid. <laughs> what would be the most stupid location for you to have a meal in Florence? Now, you've got um, the, the palace, uh, but inside the palace, you could be in Amsterdam, you could be in France. It's hard to distinguish that it's Florence. You could be in the Amal, the big cathedral there. Uh, again, being in a cathedral, you could be in England, you could even be in parts of America. So where did we have to be? that if you saw a photograph of that meal, you would go, my God, you were in Florence. The Accademia de Galleria is the <laughs> only museum that houses Michelangelo's David. Okay? Oh Anyone that knows this knows it has to be Florence. So no I contacted way. them through some friends of mine. So I walked in with credibility. And I asked them that this is what I wanted to do. And they let me have the Academia Museum from three o'clock in the afternoon till two o'clock in the morning. Oh my dear God. And I had a diet, I had a, a <laughs> chef that set up the table and they did all now I had managed to pull this off in one day. And there's a point to this which I want you guys to benefit from. So come Wednesday, I thought to myself, well, this is nice, but if any of you have ever <laughs> been in a museum at night, it's very, very quiet. 
Yeah. And if you're chomping away at your pasta and there's nothing going on, that's bad. So I thought to myself, okay, how can I make this a little bit more entertaining? So I got a string quartet. That was dead easy. You know, they're all <laughs> over Florence. Um, so I got a string quartet to come in. And oh, then I thought God. to myself, how can I take it further? You know, I'm constantly go for stupid, go for stupid, go for stupid. And again, you fail. As we've already said, you hit ridiculous. So come the night, the guy gets picked up in a, in a horse-drawn carriage, rolls around Florence. Florence is very small, pulls up outside the Academia, the Galleria, a little bit of theatrics of him knocking on the door, blah, blah, blah. Door opens up to a red carpet with pedals all the way down to a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. Jesus, you've now, got this, to be kidding me. This was phenomenal, was fantastic. As they're eating their pasta, I told my client that I would have a local inter a local singer come in to serenade them while they had their dinner. <laughs> Just as he starts eating his pasta, I bring in Andrea Bocelli to serenade him while he's eating his dinner. Come on, dude. I no way. So I had Andrea Bocelli serenading six people while they're munching on their pasta. <clears throat> now, that was fantastic. That was brilliant. Yes, I'm awesome, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm going to give you the lesson that I got out of that, which I didn't see coming. So at about 5 o'clock that evening, the dinner we were hosting was going to be at 9 o'clock. But at 5 o'clock that evening, I had full reign of the, of the museum. I had an entire museum to myself. I am wandering all around it, enjoying it. <clears throat> but there was one guy in the museum didn't kind of like me. He was the curator. Now, everyone that was the owners and the backers and the event, they all supported me. So I got anything I wanted because I already had the big boys saying yes and girls, yeah. actually. But the curator looked to me like, you know, just a connector. You know, you're just a rich kid that does these things. You don't understand the art, the value, the history. And he's right. He's, he's right. I didn't understand any of that. I was serving a purpose. And I did, but this guy gave me friction. Every time I went, oh, we're going to need to do this, he'd be like, uh-huh, yes, okay, I will get to it soon. You know, he really wanted it to be well known that he wasn't happy with me. So this is where the, uh, the immature prick in me comes out. So on that night, at about 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, a good three hours before dinner's being served and uh, clients coming and all that kind of stuff, I'm leaning against the side of the museum looking to the profile of uh, Michelangelo's David. And I was chatting away with Veronica Bocelli, Andrea's wife. <laughs> On the other side to me, and I won't mention his name, was the curator. Hands yeah. folded, just watching while they set up the table. And Andrea is just setting up and warming up. And they are moving Andrea's son was there because he was the pianist. They are moving the piano around so that it wasn't too much reverb. So they would play a few notes, move it five feet. And if anyone knows anything about pianos, they'd then have to retune it, check it up again. No, that doesn't work. Move it three feet. So they were dancing this piano around, trying to find where it gave the less reverb for um, Andrea to be able to sing. Yeah, Veronica had gone off to help out with uh, Andrea. And I thought to myself, I'm going to stick it to this guy for giving me so much friction. How dare he try to make this awkward? So I called him over to me, and he comes over, and he stood next to me. He's still got his arms folded, still looking like an irritated, well-dressed Italian guy. 
And I said to him, so uh, what do you think of that dinner table? You know, can you imagine, is there any better table to have an Italian meal? And he's like, no, that is, that is beautiful. Again, I apologize about the accents. And he's like, that is beautiful. And I said, look at that. We're at the feet of Michelangelo's David. Can you imagine if you're going to have an Italian meal? Where could it possibly be? Can you believe this is happening? And he's like, no, it is a, it is a beautiful. It is uh, lovely. It's gorgeous. And I said, and, and look at this. We've got Andrea Bocelli that's actually going to serenade our clients during our meatballs. Can you believe that? And he's like, no, that is, that is wonderful. And I was just rubbing it in that I had pulled this off, even though he had given me friction. Right. Don't mess with me. That was where I was. I told you it was a selfish prick move. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, okay, here we go. I'm going to smack him in a Tuesday now. Here goes the question that's going to drop him on his knees. So I said to him, so uh, how come I managed to make this happen? You know, and I was very firm to make it. I made yeah. it happen. Not you, you little irritation. <laughs> me. And he literally, and I was expecting well, no one's as connected as you, Mr. Sim. No one's as smooth. No one's as good looking. No one's as yeah. suave. I was expecting, I'd have taken any one of those. Yeah. Okay. With his arms crossed, he looked over to me and he went, eh, no one's ever asked. Oh. Yeah. Killed me. Took the wind out of my sails. And I went, ah, oh. little bugger smiled <laughs> like crazy because he knew he had just done the knockout shot. And I was like, no. Now, I will say that was about three years ago, and we've stayed really, really good friends ever since because we went out afterwards. He won, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I came back to the States, and for about three months, <clears throat> I phoned up the Pentagon. I phoned up recording studios. I phoned up artists. I phoned up all of these people that I dealt with, and I was like, hey, I just want to ask you a question. Just catching up on a few. How come we managed to do this? And they wow. all came back with the same answer. Well, you asked, Steve. So I am amazed today how many people want things, but they never ask for them. Wow. That is, oh my God. Dude, that is, that's, that's the most valuable lesson I think ever shared on here in the context of that story, right? Like that, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And you're still yeah. friends with that? You're friends with the curator? Oh, hell yeah, because that, that bugger knocked me out. Um, so we, we stay in touch. I've been back there. Florence is one of my favorite towns. I love the Florentine state. So I've been back there a whole bunch of time with him and his family. He's been over here to the States. And he loves to tell the story about how he crippled Steve Sims at the academia. So uh, that's, his little, uh, that's his little bit. Oh, my God. Where is um, – I, I, like, man, I, I – um... First off, thank you for being on here. Like you are, you're amazing, man. Like uh, your stories, your, uh, I, I love the simplicity of it. Like here, I'm expecting the end of that story with the curator to be like, he, you know, is, is going to start polishing your shoes now. <laughs> and, and instead you're like, no, he knocked me into the next month. Like yeah. that shot. But like, uh, thank you, man. Like this, this is, this, this has been incredible. Where can, where's the best place for everybody to um, follow you? 
Well, if you're on Facebook, you can jump over to an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. Maybe someone could put it in the comments here. Joe, you've been a waste of space so far. If you could put it in there, we'd appreciate it. Um, but I've got an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. Um, that's my free Facebook page. And I'm always in there communicating. You can find my silly pictures on Instagram, as you'll appreciate. I put no thought behind what I post. I just post. Um, yeah. But uh, and I'm also on Steve D Sims if you wanna if you wanna sign up for the newsletters and stuff. But to see my videos and to really get hold of me and uh, kind of hang around with me, you want to jump over to an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims. Oh, I want to hang around with you, but not on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the better the better stories are at my speakeasies. I I'm sure, man. Private event, and that's when the, that's when the stories really come out. Dude, you're you're absolutely a phenomenal human being. Thank you so much for coming on here. It's been one of my favorite shows ever, man. So out of 270 interviews, you're 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 up there, man. Maybe number one. Ooh, <laughs> Not to much. offend anybody that's been on already. Yeah. <laughs> Screw them. <laughs> I love it. Hey, stay with me real quick. I'm gonna end the live stream. Thank you to everyone who shared this out. Um, man, and go follow this guy, Steve, you freaking rock, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. See you guys later.